While the impetus for Bogdanovich's movie-making career began with Roger Corman, the genesis of his directorial ambitions came earlier, as an actor studying under the tutelage of Stella Adler and her prestigious New York studio for The Method. Bogdanovich gathered a troupe of his fellow students and directed them in a scene from Clifford Odets's The Big Knife, which went so successfully that it prompted him to secure the rights to the show so they could mount a complete production. It was, perhaps, inevitable then, that at some point in his career, Bogdanovich would find himself drawn back to the stage. But where other directors used Broadway as an escape route from the movies, Bogdanovich would use the recent success of Michael Frayn's bedroom farce Noises Off as a kind of kindling for the reignition of his creative hearth. Bogdanovich retained universally warm impressions of the film for the rest of his career, both the making of and the end result. Despite having delivered another lead weight to the theaters, nothing appears to have soured the director's feelings about Noises Off. It's likely that it wasn't indifference, but expectation for Bogdanovich at this point. He'd been double-crossed or unsupported by studios pretty consistently since he first fell from the height of his powers. Almost 20 years later, he appears content to have filled the role of a director for hire, making plenty of movies, but never a profit. The next script to land on his desk was a romantic drama about country music songwriters. On the surface, The Thing Called Love appears to share the least DNA with all the director's other films. But Bogdanovich fostered an affection for country music, beginning with his time on The Last Picture Show, eventually culminating in a handful of songwriting credits of his own. The film had a youthful spirit to it not seen since Picture Show, drawing from the energetic talents of its adolescent performers. Tragedy would, however, continue to plague Bogdanovich's films, as, for the second time in his career, a sudden death would torpedo his film's box office prospects. The Thing Called Love was the last completed performance by the promising young River Phoenix before he tragically died from a drug overdose on October 30, 1993. Once again, the studio was reluctant to release the film, and critics couldn't focus on anything beyond the pall of death hanging over the film. It would be another eight years before Bogdanovich returned to the theaters. The familiar comfort of old Hollywood and its outsized legends provided Bogdanovich the necessary inspiration for his theatrical comeback. The story drew from a perennial rumor once told to him by Orson Welles, a story concerning William Randolph Hearst and his mistress, the youthful actress Marion Davies. This was not the same tale which lent its inspiration to the pages of Citizen Kane. This was a tale of jealousy, indulgence, and murder. A tale which traveled along the lips of every Los Angeles gossipist for close to a century, and was now resting in Bogdanovich's hands in the form of a stage play titled The Cat's Meow. As was the case with Nickelodeon, the studio shot down Bogdanovich's proposals to shoot the silent era period piece in black and white, but he worked around it by employing the same costuming and set design techniques implemented for At Long Last Love, achieving the desired feeling while still shooting in color. The film was completed in an economical 31 days, on a relatively modest budget. The cat's meow was set to be a contender for Bogdanovich, so you know the studio just had to leave him holding the bag yet again. The cat's meow made it only a handful of screens when it was released grossed less than half its cost, and saw zero awards prospects for either its luminous director or its superlative cast. Bogdanovich's films would not return to the cinema for more than a decade. His last theatrical feature was effectively propped up by the backing of several prominent indie directors who looked to the elder statesman as their treasured forebear. I let them call me Pops, Bogdanovich would say, and I call them my kids. These same contemporary filmmakers who earlier championed Bogdanovich's buried works we're now working to help him realize one final project, which had been gestating for the last 15 years. Squirrels to the Nuts, as it was originally called, was first drafted in the mid-90s, 
after Bogdanovich filed for bankruptcy a second time, and as an exercise in escapism between himself and his second wife, Louise Stratton, the late Dorothy's younger sister. It was another screwball romance from the director, penned with the same personal affection and character as his previous romps, intended as a starring vehicle for his wife and cinematic avatar, John Ritter. Ritter's premature passing in 2003 put the project in limbo, however, and it wasn't until Wes Anderson introduced Bogdanovich to his thespian analog Owen Wilson that the now septuagenarian filmmaker felt he could bring his script to fruition. She's Funny That Way, as the film was ultimately titled, had all the bells and whistles of a Bogdanovich film, but wore a coat of contemporary colors, creating some odd dissonance which struck critics and audiences at the time. Here was Bogdanovich making yet another screwball throwback, littered with the most explicit old Hollywood references he'd ever displayed, with a cast of characters that couldn't seem farther away from that glitzy nostalgia so often peppered across his films. The whole thing appeared a bit thrown together, as if it was a quick little project assembled by a few friends over a handful of weekends together. And you know what? It kind of was that. She's Funny That Way was shot on a similarly expedient schedule to the cast Miel, on a modest budget largely supplied thanks to the confidence bestowed by executive producers Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach. It didn't perform exceptionally well and didn't make back its cost, but it got Bogdanovich back in the directing chair and saw the realization of one last personal story for the erstwhile legend. Bogdanovich's boys gave to him what he struggled to supply his mentor with for so many years, the financial opportunity to complete the vision studios never had the faith to pursue. Bogdanovich would eventually pay back the favor by fulfilling a promise he made to Orson Welles some many years before. In 2018, thanks to decades of dedication and wrangling from his former protege, preservationist, and devoted friend, Welles' final film, The Other Side of the Wind, was completed and released to the world. If anything ever happens to me, I want you to promise me that you'll finish the picture. It took more than 30 years after Wells died for Bogdanovich to fulfill that promise, and even though it was not his own creative spirit behind the wheel, the culmination of The Other Side of the Wind proved to be one of the most significant and crowning achievements of the intrepid movie Maverick's collective career. Bogdanovich passed away on January 6, 2022, due to complications from Parkinson's disease at the age of 82. He died an older man than all his idols, Hawks, Hitchcock, Ford, and Wells leaving behind a legacy as rich and illustrious as those luminaries, with the added feather of preserving their stature tucked in his cap. His life was as active and infectious as his movies, with greater drama than all of Hollywood could muster. With his passing, the few remaining ties to the Hollywood of old have ceased. But through his work, both on and off the screen, those legends continue to live on. And by revitalizing their stories for a new generation, Bogdanovich secured the traditions he loved while inspiring new filmmakers to follow in his stead, signaling a true change of the guard from the masters of old to the artists of today. back to the Twin Geeks 151. We're back with our Peter Bogdanovich series and um, welcome back to the show uh, Noises Pod. Noises Pod, I guess that would have been a good one as well. The Pod um, Called Love. Glad to be here. Take one today. 
The, Hopefully that one makes it through. The cat's potty owl. Mm, well, maybe try again. Pod's that's a, funny that, that way. That pod called, called love. That yeah, that pod called love will be it. Pod, pods to the nuts. I like that one still. <laughs> that would have been a great title. Right. <laughs> I love it. Um, so this is the the last of the theatrical films of uh, Bogdanovich's career. Uh, usually what would probably be the last episode we would generally cover, but there's a lot more to dive into after this. There's still two more weeks of Bogdanovich after this, but this is kind of like the end of his career, so to speak, we'll be covering. Man, I, I know we started this pod with like this impetus of, oh, he had just passed and like all these uh, major celebrities from this era are passing. As soon as we start the show, my favorite Seattle mu- musician, news is he passed away. Uh, Mark oh, no. Lanigan um, from the Screaming Trees and Mad Season. Just as we did the intro, and I was like, man, like this whole era of, you know, what we grew up with and uh, these connections to the old style, like uh, Mark Lanigan, of course, like a bluesman that was like very inspired by Muddy Water, brought Nirvana, that uh, Where'd You Sleep Last Night song, and uh, just an incredible musician. So I'm heartbroken already. Great way to start the show. Yeah. Uh, all it- fuck. He also did a lot with Queens of the Stone Age and uh, a lot of uh, um, combinations with Seattle bands. So I'm already heartbroken. <laughs> Great way to start. Yeah, I guess that fits in tonally here again because we, we do kind of reach the end of the Bogdanovich career. But uh, we did all the tragedy last week, mostly. There's still a little bit yeah. of tragedy in this episode, so don't don't worry. We'll get to, <laughs> we'll get to all the sad stuff. But, but first, uh, uh, some very happy uh, or anxiously happy wild <laughs> stuff right yeah uh, a bit of uh, uh redemption you, you might say for for bogdanovich a chance to like re- return to the the fold from where he works best you know kind of gain back some credibility after a series of uh financial false starts failures and such uh what we left off last with illegally yours being a total butchered production mm-hmm. and texasville like doing nothing and being generally mundane for us uh, again like for zero audiences who haven't seen the last picture show so noises off is uh again a return to the stage where where he started you know in all the interviews he gives you know people talk about uh, he, he says uh, that people don't talk about how he began as an as an actor initially he was an actor uh which you definitely get from him in interviews he, he's a very lively personality full of performances and he wanted to be an actor initially but uh ended up falling into directing Lots of pomp and circumstance and a lot of uh, affectations and, yeah, a lot of actorly uh, ticks to Bogdanovich. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, uh, you know, likewise, he just fell as easily into being a director uh, of stage first. And so, and and you can see that by returning to the stage with Noises Off, which is an adaptation of a British sex farce bedroom comedy. uh, That's kind of like a metatextual reflection of that whole genre. Um, that, that he really does have an understanding of of the stage and the, the kind of mania that goes into uh, a stage production. I don't know how experienced you are with uh, the theater, Calvin. I, I'm not experienced with the theater. I've, I, I've been to a few theater productions. I haven't been in any. I, I've been in a number, but all when I was younger as, mm-hmm. a, as a little person. Um, I uh, My house, actually, the house I grew up in was literally across the street from... <laughs> Uh, a, a theater. I, I can actually tell this. This will be funny. My my 
my wife once offered me uh, when, when we were first getting to know each other. Um, we we were uh, shooting the, a play there, the local playhouse it was Chicago, and uh, as a way of like trying to like like flirt with me and stuff, she offered me like a ride home. I was like, oh no, I could just walk. It's like literally right there. And she's like, no, no, really, it's no problem. I'm like, no, literally, it's like you can see the house right there, just like pointing out from the parking lot. <laughs> just told totally me being oblivious to what what she was trying to the, the hints she was trying to lay there. <laughs> I did that too in in high school. I had this girl I had a major crush on. She offered me a ride home, and I I walked two miles instead. I didn't take the ride. <laughs> oh, it was more like uh, you know, two hundred feet or something for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, same same principle there. I'm glad that that someone else can commiserate my obliviousness. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the the theater I've I've always loved, and and then especially the, the backstage antics, and you can see them really play out in Noises Off uh, terrifically. Uh, this was my second time watching the film, and the first time was not as pleasant. Um, and it's it's definitely a film that can be grating. <laughs> There's a lot going in this movie. Um, I, I, I really hope for you to have a positive experience, because my initial impression was just, wow, like uh, so much farce, like, uh, and not quite even like the bring it up baby effect where I'm like constantly put off. Uh, it, I mean, it's just like a, a shit show of a production that um, geniusly, I think, uh, gets to show um, how the production's supposed to work, what the internal uh, motivations of the characters are. And then it uh, goes to the backstage of how the production would work. And then it uh, flips it again and shows the production going off horribly. Um, on the front of the stage so you get multiple layers of of this working and not working so you have an understanding and a context for why it's so funny that it's not working and and how it's funny because it's a uh, really it's a play with what like five or six doors so there's uh four or five characters who are stuck in this house they're trying not to notice each other while the maid brings out sardines and answers the telephone and uh, it's a game of doors so they're they're going in and out of the doors and um, the couples are getting mixed up. They have a uh, uh, mixed communications, and um, there's a there's a prince who comes by later. Uh, bed sheets are right, used. A, a, a Saudi prince, like Saudi they're prince. trying to strike in an oil deal. That's like a yeah. a plot point of this play uh, that they are staging. <laughs> and two of the characters are like, trying to evade their taxes and run from the men, and then uh, two of the characters are like tax collectors or something. I believe it's something like that where they have a, a vested interest. In not meeting these people it's it's a little uh nonsensical certainly the the story but the the grounding of it and that that first act i think is the kind of vital thing that sets it apart from something like a, a, a bring a baby which we both have a mutual disinterest in <laughs> that's true uh, because the mania has no grounding in a lot of those so and that's the the issue with some of the uh more manic screwball comedies of like the 30s and such is that if there's not a grounding element, some kind of normalcy to bounce all of the chaos off of, then it's just a bunch of white noise and it can be really overwhelming. And the structure of the the, the play here is the grounding element that's really essential in Noises Off. And I think that's part of what didn't connect with me the first time, why I didn't like it so much and why it just felt like just unhinged madness that was irritating, is because I didn't invest in the stage play and how the events were supposed to be going so much the first time whereas the second time going in and having a better understanding of that uh and, and 
properly tempering my expectations of what the film was going to be, I was able to absorb it a lot better and then appreciate how everything kind of falls apart. Um, and more so, I was able to look past the, the more <laughs> grating or overwhelming elements and appreciating the, the artistry and the direction behind it all. Because even if it's it's a film that just would get on your nerves completely and, you know, you, you just want to, like, make your head explode, you can't help but appreciate the deftness with which that's executed. Like, there's... A, an undeniably impressive element of just how maddening it is, <laughs> like how maddening Bogdanovich is able to make it. Particularly in the second act, I think, which is largely <laughs> silent. You know, mm -hmm. uh, all of the all of the the words, you know, all of the the dialogue is happening on stage, and you're but, seeing everything from backstage, and it's just a bunch of like, slapstick. You know, it's, like action. it's silent, but they can make noise, and there's a tension about them making noise and disrupting right. the play. So it's all these like pratfalls, so the, these misdirections and miscues, and uh, them trying not to make noise, and also hit each other with an ax over the head. And uh, there, there's a lot going on there. There's so many layers of, of funny there. Because the important thing that informs the second act is the uh, the, the real life um, romantic entanglements and jealousies <laughs> that have flared up in, you know, uh, amongst the cast of this sex farce. And again, the kind of like the irony of, of that. So the actors now hate each other because they're all fucking one another and you know so some are jealous of the other so john ritter is trying to swing an axe at christopher reeve and murder him because he's been sleeping with one of the other cast members admit i think we get to see so much from from good performers we get like michael kane in here who's a good analog for the audience who's constantly upset with like what the performers are doing and directing the play and mm -hmm. we do get like a really interesting john ritter and christopher reeve reeve in a way i haven't really seen him so i i really enjoy him this yeah. way yeah, and uh, Michael Caine is uh, not not just a very good, again, another, you know, kind of analog for the audience, but also an agent of the chaos himself and a perpetuator and another, you know, philanderer within <laughs> yes. the cast, which, which again is like that, that meta textual aspect where the performers are just as in bed with one another as the characters mm -hmm. of the, the, the play that they're putting on. So were you familiar with the play before you watched it the first time? Not at all. Okay, uh, so... For me, I didn't know like that that part was the play, I guess. Like I I didn't know if that was like invented part for the movie until like I got through the first section, right? Like I, I thought maybe he was pulling away and, and adding things to a play to make it meta, but but then I I watched the videos after and obviously it's all part of the play, like the backstage falling apart. And it's not yeah. like him like making a movie about a play. It's a literal adaptation of a play falling apart in a meta way. Yeah, but a big thing for Bogdanovich said said is that he he found that you know the issues anyone ever had when when you have a hit play he basically said the thing to do is just shoot the play just mm -hmm. make that because that's what made it a hit if you go messing with it then you're gonna change the things that made it work and uh, that's basically what he did aside from a couple of things which are arguably the least good parts of it he, again he. <laughs> He didn't exactly follow his own advice. He mostly followed it, but he added on like a prologue and epilogue yeah. through some like voiceover and a little bit of stuff in in the middle, uh, just to kind of try and like bridge all the pieces. But it it's just a little superfluous, a little unnecessary, uh, a little too much like context. Especially the end. I don't like how the end just kind of like tries to wrap a nice little bow on all the relationships. Oh, they I got know. married. You know, it's enough. No, it it really just you need to end on the the big bang there. And I think that was an issue that I had, I think, going back to, like, What's Up Doc, even, where it's, uh, 
like you you've you've gone on beyond the, the final punchline. Mm -hmm. You should have wrapped it up a little bit earlier. Uh, so I think that's that's a, an issue here as well. But also, I guess, kind of at the same time, like I understand the desire to provide a little bit more context because otherwise there's there's these big gaps between the the dress rehearsal and then the first like road show and then the big performance uh which are the three different stages which and is it's very very good structurally yeah it's it's, it's it's also cover for like the intermissions that would naturally happen in the play i, yeah. I guess what i was most impressed with was the fluidity and uh some of the shots are very long um, and he does so much with the camera to follow. There were only two times where he's like on the wrong door, I felt, or on the wrong character in the play. But I, overall, that's pretty impressive with how frenzied and uh, chaotic it gets. And um, I mean, there's so much to track and the blocking is so good that everyone's yeah. generally in the right place at the right time. And um, there, I mean, there are so many like objects that are material to like the, the plot's development, like whether it's like missing um, sardines or, or a, a suitcase or a dress for the lady or um, the, I mean, there's, there's so much object comedy there. Uh, it, it's very funny. I think, yeah, that's something that really comes through when you do a, a play more so for some reason in, uh, I, I guess it's because it's the, the limited amount of them uh, props become so much more important in stage plays than they do in films, I guess, because in films, you know, props, objects, whatever, they're very, mundane and ordinary they're, they're expected to have you know you need set dressing you know to to an almost excessive degree just for any regular old scene so somebody using an item isn't as particularly important but as in a stage play it's very uh particular it's very intentional the items that are included for characters to use and so you use them a bit more pointedly and again like all all the crazy maneuvering of the objects here is you know really fantastically done and like you said blocked incredibly well and i think well, again it would it would be impressive enough just in the context of the play that they're putting on which it would. you know is itself is a kind of manic sex farce you know it's a, it's a comedy uh like that but it becomes all the more inflated and exaggerated once things start to descend into madness which happens again almost immediately start <laughs> yeah it starts light enough that you still are getting a good sense of what is supposed to be happening, but uh, while characters are already screwing things up like like crazy. <laughs> and it's so, so great. It's so great at introducing those elements and letting you know what's going wrong without breaking the, without characters breaking effectively. Yeah, um, until they do start breaking eventually in the <laughs> end. Like in, in the final act, Carol Burnett just doesn't give a shit. Like, like she is just like, rolling with whatever like this She's is gone, the show yeah. is completely off the rails she's just riffing on whatever the fuck is happening and you know and while, while like john ritter is still like trying to rebalance things is it, it, a great dynamic i think going on there in the last act and he just he's got the tick where he just he, you know he doesn't know how to ex exactly right and that, that's his whole thing and so particularly when he's trying to improvise and, and realign the, the the story there he he's just not saying anything at all yeah it's it's so great too we have the um the other bit with the bloody nose every time there's violence which is mm -hmm. which is a hilarious bit because it causes a character withdraw to withdraw comedically and um yeah i have very good characters in the play I, itself the cast is so is really phenomenal you know not not just like we already mentioned michael kane carol burnett and uh you know chris Lee, but but even some of the more smaller ones like uh Denelma elliott um who i only 
can remember and recall as Marcus Brody from Indiana Jones. Uh, he he's terrific, a drunk there. Julie Haggerty is really great as the uh, the script girl, the assistant there. Uh, I really love that. Again, like just a, a really solid cast all around. Everyone really giving their all, uh, and game for just about anything. Game for so much. Um, I guess if I had to pick one, I think John Ritter just stands out because of his incredible physicality, and and also because this is the last time he collaborated with Bogdanovich. This mm-hmm. is a you know they had a very close working relationship and friendship. Uh, he, he was there for him a lot, especially in the, the wake of Dorothy Strand's murder. So, and and thinking about how uh, he, he was supposed to play a part in, you know, a different Bogdanovich film before he died, I, I think that imbues this with another kind of special aspect for him as well. I don't know, projecting, of course, but mm-hmm. n- nonetheless, still, uh, it it makes me appreciate John Ritter even, even more as a performer. Yeah, very good here. Um... I, I quite liked it right away. I, I thought I was I was in on on all the jokes and uh, I I was pulled in by the comedy, the constant comedy and the the physicality of everyone in the movie. Very good, uh, yeah. a lot of fun and overwhelming. I was very overwhelmed by then. I, literally at the end, I needed to go lie down for <laughs> a little bit. Like I I needed to take some time to breathe. I couldn't do a lot for the rest of the day. I just like. Uh, I feel like it could use a little more breathing room is, is maybe my, my, my chief issue because I don't think I could handle that on a stage. I think this was what I could handle for this story. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it definitely could use a, a little bit more like reprieve somewhere in there. It's nice to have a little bit of that in like in the middle, but definitely as it keeps getting more man, like the last two acts are a little more close together. The first one has a bit more broken up parts because you've got bits like, Christopher Reeve pausing things to try and clarify stuff. Right. So, all, so all the action stops for a little bit and we have a little bit more lighter like dialogue comedy uh, for a bit. And that that's very helpful. I think the first act is is basically like un, untouchable in terms of how it communicates everything, how it sets it all up, how vital it makes everything. And while the, the comedy really, really ramps up in the last two, it's it's almost it's too much. It's a little too much. Okay. <laughs> impressively so i'm i'm very impressed by how bogdanovich managed to pull this all off in a way that's still like a complete you know comprehensive package but it's it's a little too much and and i, and I need to sit back yeah what's played for laughs becomes chaotic drama i mean it I, it's not as funny anymore because it's about like these characters lives falling apart on stage in front of an audience and how devastating that could be but i'm just uh, it's I'm still just more pretty concerned funny. my heart's gonna fall out of my chest you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure um and so so kudos to bogdanovich for making that happen to me but at the same time dude (laughs) calm down (laughs) i don't think we'll have that problem with the next movie or any of the others today actually yeah um this was probably the the high point of this era of uh bogdanovich's filmmaking certainly uh where his his directorial prowess shines the brightest um less so in the thing called love, uh, mm-hmm. which was the next film he made, uh, which feels more, more in the vein of the previous two films, more of a kind of director for hire gig that he was doing. Uh, but one that that still has some Bogdanovichian elements to it, particularly the affection for country music, which we saw kind of cropping up in, you know, they all laughed and uh, the bit in Illegally Yours, the song he wrote with Johnny Cash there. Uh, and this one's just all about country music, young, 
uh, young musicians, young songwriters in Nashville trying to make their way in the world, varying degrees of success. And the film is also full of varying degrees of success. We just watched it together and you had watched the director's cut while I had the theatrical. So um, every couple minutes, ours would go a little bit out of sync and I'd have to like wait for it to uh, get past the scenes I wasn't seeing, which some of them uh, a little bit surprising. As you said, one of them establishes a lot of character uh, and I didn't get it at all. Yeah, it was was very early on too. And then all of the song numbers are longer, which... uh, uh, Again, like like as a producer, I'm trying to put my producer hat on and see why you would choose to cut those. And and logically, it's like, well, if there's anything you can dial back a little bit, I guess songs make sense. Like cutting dialogue is harder because a lot of it can be essential. But also at the same time, that's what we're there for. That's what the audience wants to see. It's the songs, right? You know, it's all about the music. So why why dial back on the music? Particularly the uh, early one where you have everyone in the auditions, you know, trying to do their bits, and they're all pretty short and and the 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 auditioner just writes a big no on everyone's uh audition form and then you have river phoenix come up and do his his number which is the one that blows everyone away but it's also like just as short even in a longer version and you would think to really solidify the impact of how much greater his material is and how much better his performance is you would really milk that number you would play it out in full but uh, they didn't, not even in the, the full version. Uh, it really could have gone longer because the, the music is, prob- is, I think, far away the best component of the film. We also get uh, one of the last uh, River Phoenix uh, performances. One came out posthumously, but I believe yeah. this was the last one before his death. The last completed one. I believe 80% of the other film was shot when he, yeah. when he died. Dark Blood, which I haven't seen. But. I haven't either. It was completed in 2012, apparently. That's interesting. I want to come back to that. Um, there is uh, my favorite River Phoenix in um, my own private Idaho. Uh, mm-hmm. Just love the guy. So uh, I've always thought it was a shame. He seemed and, like that James Dean type. For sure. And he's really good here. He's Yeah. He is by are the most outstanding performer of the bunch. He's a great singer as well. He, His he music wrote, bits are good, aren't they? Yeah, he wrote one of the songs. There's there's one particular song he, he gets to perform that's very catchy, very uh, energetic, and it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of like a recurring one for the film. Um, but it's really like meandering otherwise, the movie. Uh, it kind of pops in and out. Um, it seems like, it feels like it's missing scenes at certain stretches. Like there's developments that happen between characters entirely off screen. Um, you know, and again, it kind of obfuscates the passage of time uh, and certain people fall by the wayside. Uh, How do you feel about like someone like Sandra Bullock here? Oh, fine. Um, I, don't, I don't have strong feelings. It's interesting because apparently, according to Bogdanovich, this is the role that got her the co the co starring role in Speed. What? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't what, know why. That's what Jan de Bond told him that he saw the movie and, and liked her here. So I don't, I don't I thought, dislike her. So. I, she she doesn't stand out to me. She she's a little like her her character is written to be a little kind of like irritating, but again, also like unfulfilled aspects. Like there's a scene early on in the diner where she says something cryptic to. Uh, Samantha um, Mathis's character uh, about like how you know the person you know sometimes when you first meet them isn't how they actually are. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Something really like that. She's obviously very like like she comes in. She's upset that 
so that Samantha Mathis wants to spend time by herself writing music in a diner. Uh, but nothing of that tension ever comes to fruition. Like she's over it by the time they next get together and there's never really any further animosity. No. So I, I, I mean, the film doesn't really reach a particular conclusion either. I think about anything, you know, there's a, there's a romance fostering between her and River Phoenix and, and it leads to, you know, a, a full blown uh, marriage, like kind of marriage, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but also gets annulled. Uh, and again, the movie leaves on this kind of, ambiguous note but I got no no particular resounding reflections of anything uh not, not of the country music scene not of youthful romance you know not, not of uh starving artists in general uh it, it feels really unfocused and, and I think that's a script problem more than the direction the direction is competent at all times, but not particularly impressive either. It really does feel like uh, another case, you know, another like kind of mask ish where anyone could have made this, but with mask having a lot better material and I think better execution, better performances also all around, you know, everyone in that film is really good and it's really mostly River Phoenix here kind of stands out. Yeah. Um, very, very good River Phoenix. He's always pretty good. He's charismatic and uh, fun. It does feel like, um, for all the things that were included in your director's cut, we're missing a lot of scenes that that do bring their characters together. And I, uh, I assume there are scenes that just don't exist. Otherwise, why would you put them in? Like, yeah, uh, as you said while we were watching it, it's a lot of script problems, and possibly it's just a bad script that doesn't quite get there. Yeah, uh, and, and again, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes a, a director can you know move past and, and uplift a, a bad script, you know, or an underwhelming script. Uh, by either cutting from or, or filling in the blanks a bit, you know, rewriting. And obviously we've seen the case where Bogdanovich is the writer and then the true author of the film uh, is usually where he uh, succeeds the most. And so in, in projects like this, where he's, you know, hands off script wise and uh, just, you know, kind of taking up the, the, the direction and delivering the film, uh, it can be a little lackluster. And, and that is definitely the case here. Again, there's, there's, some elements that are good, some elements that are intriguing. Uh, th there's at least one Bogdanovichian scene where uh, at the drive-in there. Yeah, the drive-in. They they they're showing the man who shot Liberty Valance and <laughs> Mathis and uh, Phoenix sing a song, uh, an impromptu song about Jimmy and John Wayne fighting over Vera Miles. I love and, that bit actually. Yeah, it's you know it's it was an interesting bit up front there, especially because I liked it as a juxtaposition of. The, the love triangle there and then the one between her and river and uh, i don't know this other guy anyway the, the it didn't come to fruition ultimately because that guy was very unimportant and the love mm -hmm. triangle was kind of like a moot point it, it wasn't really it's true a love triangle at all so uh what, what i first i thought was a kind of promising reflection in you know this this older western film with the the country you know analogs of today uh didn't amount to anything which again feels kind of like a lot a lot of what the film is ultimately like it's got you know smatterings of ideas that don't really uh coalesce into something i know we said that mass previously other directors could have made it but i think many other directors could have made this movie yeah well it it, it feels distinctly indistinct yes yeah. i guess how i'll put it <laughs> very mediocre it's not ever so bad that it's uh it's terrible no, it's... but 
sometimes movies aren't who you think they are. There's something else. <laughs> it's very, it's very fine. It's, yeah. That's, that's about it. Yeah. Uh, Basic. The ne- ne- next film, um, though, has a lot more personality to it, I think. A lot more distinction to it, certainly. And uh, that's the, the, the cat's meow. Yeah, you think so. Um, I, uh, did, did you find this more uninteresting? <laughs> it's more Bogdanovich, certainly. It's more keyed into his interests and his love for old Hollywood. Uh, but no, I like this even less. <laughs> I'm, I'd be interested to hear why. Because uh, I, I certainly can see some reasons why. I don't think it's amazing, certainly by any means. I, I think it's, you know, good. I, th- I think it's very uh, enjoyable. I think it's 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 pulpy and fun. It's got you know lots of Bogdanovichian personality to it. I'm going to use that word a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I think it looks good despite its inherent cheapness. The the big thing uh, that the, I think the film has going against it is that it 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 looks like it has a very small budget. <laughs> and I think it looks cheap despite its goodness. So there yeah, we are. It's. It's it's mostly like I think the art direction choices are are really good and do a lot to uplift the the, the visual look of the film. I think there's some good cinematography throughout. Good costuming, uh, also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Locales are good. I think it's kind of ironic that they shot the film like uh, off the coast of Greece when it's supposed to be like in California. <laughs> I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's shot in like Greece, <laughs> and you can kind of see it if you look out in, on the coast and whatnot. It's like that's eh, not very interesting. interesting. Looks pretty Mediterranean. Yeah, I can see that now. <laughs> yeah, and, and like, because usually it's the other way around is that you shoot in California where it's cheap and, you know, that's meant to be Greece. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I just watched uh, both of the Death on the Nile. So uh, maybe I'm, uh, maybe my murder cases on a yacht are, are wearing on me and blending together. Uh, I, whereas I this that. quite isn't a mystery, it is like that kind of love triangle and a, a murder on a yacht movie, but a very tenuous connection. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess the other thing is really is like uh, re- reading into and how much you bring your own like like uh, consideration of the mythos into the thing. So basically, uh, to outline for those who don't know here, there's a there's a pervasive myth in Hollywood about the death of director Thomas Ince in the 1920s. Um, he was a he was a big filmmaker. He was on the cusp of signing a deal with uh, um, William Randolph Hearst to do you know distributing movies over in California when he died on his yacht under very mysterious mysterious circumstances. And the the rumor mill persisted to think that it was murder that he caught uh, that that Hearst uh, shot Thomas Ince uh, accidentally, thinking that he was. Uh, actually, Charlie Chaplin, who was rumored, you know, apparently having an affair with his mistress, Mary Davies. Um, this is not true at all. Uh, mm-hmm. Verifiably, not not at all. For for one thing, uh, Charlie Chaplin was very short, and Ince was not. So, don't know how you make that mistake. <laughs> also, uh, he Ince had lots of health problems prior to that, and he, you know ultimately like the, the conclusion was heart failure so <laughs> there's there's no evidence of any bullets being being shot certainly nothing in the in the body for any you know coronary reports or anything and i think one of the more compelling arguments i've seen against it being true is that if if this was a story that newspaper mogul and arguably most powerful man in the country william randolph hearst didn't want getting out 
it wouldn't have gotten out. Like, it just would have been shut down. <laughs> like, like how, how could a myth like this have become so widespread if literally the most powerful man in the world was, was, involved? was involved? Yeah, I guess uh, I, it didn't give me a reason to be interested not knowing any of that until the ending when, when the murder happened. I, I think there's... Uh, interest. I had no interest, but someone but else could. I think there's interest in the the general the the decadence and the the the, the bourgeois you know fantasies and and uh, failings you know the the uh, of you know 1920s Hollywood the the indulgence and such and seeing that kind of play out in this uh, almost kind of like Greek Greek drama Greek tragedy kind of way um, and especially with all of the the luminaries kind of involved here all the big Hollywood stars um, uh, and, and, and particularly some some good performances I think. Some also not good performances. This is my Mank to 1978's Death on the Nile. I could I could see parallels with Mank pretty pretty well here. Um, yeah, I think it looks better than Mank though. <laughs> uh, and and I don't know. I think there's a bit more character and personality to to something like this. But you're you're I mean, not the, wrong. To they're draw doing similarities. like they're doing the Charleston all the time, and they're having fun, and uh, they just don't want to look in the mirror and see how silly they are. Oh yeah, I, I think that's, that's part of it. Again, it's like these crisp. I, th I think some of the weirder things are some of like the opening and closing choices, like the narration, yeah. and then where he tried to put black and white on the film in the beginning and end. I, I kind of like that. I I thought it faded really naturally the first uh, time. But... I just I don't like post applied I know. black and white to anything. I because it, it always looks wrong because it's not lit for black and white. You know. Have you so seen Have you seen the clip where Bogdanovich like confronts Noah Baumbach about uh, Francis Ha and why he is black and white? He's like, so uh, you knew that you uh, couldn't uh, shoot it naturally in digital, right? And he he's giving him a horrible time about it, and uh, eventually he's like, yeah, it does look nice, but uh, I'm I'm adamantly against you shooting it. And didn't you know Orson Welles was the, was an advocate that all performances were better in black and white and all that um, <laughs> really lovely stuff? But yeah, I was surprised to see him do it then. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was also the case for like uh, more recent like uh, releases or showings of Nickelodeon. They also show it in post-converted black and white because that's how Bogdanovich wanted it. And lots of people say, oh, it plays better. But I don't know. They 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 do that black and white gimmick for a lot of movies nowadays. Mm -hmm. But they, they just did it for Nightmare Alley, I think, didn't they? Yeah, so. the, yeah, they switched the whole thing to black and white. And Parasite and Logan are recent ones that did it. Yeah, Mad Max as well. I remember. Max. I'm sure, I'm well, sure that one's good others. though because that one started with like the intention to shoot it black and white, and the monochrome they, actually they, brings something out. I saw it in the theater. I saw it in the theater all alone. I was just great. saying this. They say the same thing about Logan. Like, like, like yeah, the yeah. Director said the same thing. Oh, I meant for this to be in black and white. That's what everyone <laughs> says. It just means the studio wouldn't let them do what they wanted, and eventually right. they had to convert it less naturally than it should have been done. And and that's certainly the case again here. This, this is like the third film that's happened to with Bogdanovich here, Cat's Meow being one. And on, honestly, I think uh, I, I like that because he proves, I think, in cases like this and at Long Last Love that you can replicate the feeling of black and white with the radio color. color. Yeah. yeah. And so it's still, it, it, I feel like if anything, it's more immersive than shooting it in black and white sometimes. So the the costuming design and set design, they, they help to transport me to that time period. Uh, cool. And and the, the fabricated nature of the movies and the, the glamour of it more so than if you just shoot it in black and white. Black and white also makes me think that it's a document of the past. And if this is a subject that's not especially real, I think it's particularly yeah. important that it's not 
shown as something that existed in the past. Like, I, I think the color is important for that. I get the feeling from watching interviews that Bogdanovich might have bought into to this. Like, he, he never indicates in any interviews that this wasn't true. He just, he always says how, the, how it originated <laughs> him as something Orson Welles told him. Yeah, of what happened, and and again, it's it's one of those things that you know. There's there's so many of those uh, things that of like oh the real thing that everyone knew that happened in in Hollywood, and it was just you know it's by by word of mouth passed around this this myth about usually murder stories, lots of murder, but also you know just you know industry you know gossip in general that's never proved, but always mm -hmm. like everyone takes as gospel because it's just circulated for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh but I, I think it's worth doing anyway. I don't think it's as like uh, I don't think it's as scandalous as Mank or anything. Um, so it's just that my I didn't have a natural connection to the third act. So it was just kind of like, oh well, I see why David likes it. It's fine. Yeah, I, yeah. But I like it in a very kind of tepid way. It's like you know, yeah. oh, it's it's entertaining fluff. I find there's no substance to it. Uh, I, I like some of the performances. I think Eddie Izzard is is really good in particular. As really Charlie interesting Chaplin. choice as Chaplin because we've seen like the RDJ Chaplin and it's just totally different. Like uh, uh, these sides of Chaplin recreated for the screen are such well, different performances. Well, well, I think what's what's really good about this one in particular is that it's not a a, a lionizing depiction of Chaplin. Yeah, it's uh, not. <laughs> it's. It very much paints him as a deviant, and but and, but he also fucks, so that's yeah. you know. Well, and, and that was Chaplin. I mean, yeah. like, and and it's also not a fright. Like it, it it straight up addresses him impregnating a sixteen year old, which is always good. Um, to, always to, good to lay yeah. that bare. No, to lay it bare, not for him uh -huh. to do it, obviously, <laughs> but like to to address that with Chaplin. <laughs> uh, but just some other ways. Like I don't. Uh, one of my bigger issues is that uh, I didn't buy Kirsten Dunst as. Uh, someone from the 1920s. Uh, no, me neither. I I actually didn't buy many of the people as someone from the 20s. I I thought it was very stilted, like and modernized, and and how people acted and were. So. Yeah. Um. Which again, is that wrong? Because I think one of the motivating factors for it was that Kirsten, like Kirsten, does was one of the reasons the film got made because she was hot at the time and she wanted to play a character from the 20s. Basically, she wanted to do a, a period piece like this. And I think that's there, there's certainly you know, uh, potential in doing that, but it just feels very contemporary. The whole thing doesn't feel very framed within the context of the time. So there's an extra level of dissonance there, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but again, like just as, as general fluff popcorn entertainment, you know, pulpy Hollywood narrative, you know, mythos stuff. I, I think it's pleasant. I think it's fun and, and entertaining, uh, not something I would I would recommend or say is, you know, particularly qualitative. Again, it's there's a there's a cheapness to it. It looks, you know, like it was shot quickly. It looks like it didn't have a big budget. Uh, and there, those are very reflective things, very true things of the film. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's more compelling, you know, than, than even some of the other films uh, here. I think it's more, you know, I think it's plenty competent and, and it has more personality to it. That's one of the bigger things as well that that draws me to it. <sighs> I think I I think I watched it in too close proximity for that death of the Nile with the Jack Cardiff, it's, the Jack Cardiff of the red shoes, the African queen and uh, black Narcissus fame like uh, that shooting on the boat. I, it's my fault, really, that I right, put them together. It's a shame because like, how can you, uh, you know, avoid something like that? Like, <laughs> right. you, you don't think going in that like, oh, I watched a move another movie about a murder on a boat. So that's going to affect how I view this one. Like, you don't think that going in, you go in and say it, it'll. Oh, that's an interesting coincidence. 
and, and you you just can never tell when something like that is going to like kind of blend your experience together but it's weird I, when I, it does yeah at, at the same time i totally understand if there is just an inherent disinterest or disconnect with material here again it's not the most compelling thing in the world it, does... it may or may not be true so it's like oh no it's 100 percent not true okay so none of it is like, true but... the, the the trip on the boat happened and Ains did die on, mm -hmm. on on the boat but uh he wasn't murdered how should we know Ains? by the way do i know him Ah, no, he's mostly forgotten, but he okay. was kind of he was kind of pioneered as the father of the Western genre in the teens. Not the really? sense that he not not necessarily invested Westerns, but he did okay. a lot to to codify and like streamline the the uh making of Westerns. Uh he was he was popular at the time, but one of those silent filmmakers who is just, you know, forgotten. kind of fallen off the pages of, of history. Yeah. Is is his work not preserved or is it is it not the work? It's like the codification that matters. It's been both. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I wasn't interested in ends either, but maybe I should have uh, invested more because I, I like the Westerns. Right. Well, again, that's another thing is that like if it was, you know, like like it's I think really the hook of the story is and, and the part of the big reason why it's endured for so long is Charlie Chaplin's presence, because he's such a big name and having Hearst in there as well. Like that's what makes it compelling. Nobody cares that it was Thomas Ince that was murdered. Like it. Yeah, know, it, it I couldn't like find it a way to care anybody yeah but the fact that it's like oh this guy was murdered because charlie chaplin was having an affair with marion davies you know the you know the woman that uh you know hearst was, hearst was with and yeah, yeah yeah and and everyone remembers hearst now because of citizen kane you know and you, so you've got them being these kind of eternal figures of the era uh remaining in the public conscious so that's why the story has endured, and that's why it was made into a stage play, which then fall, fell into Bogdanovich's hands to adapt. I'd like to think his adaptation is just what Orson Welles told him, but I it wish. Kinda is. He, he says that uh, he basically rewrote the screenplay. That's great. I, I like, hope like that's really, true. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of it is similar, but he, he said in every he cut 40 pages straight off the, the top of it because it's, it didn't start at but yeah, it started at like the studio oh and it yeah. went around. Oh, we started Charlie's studio and then we so, go to Marion doing a film. Now it's uh now it's the 2022 Death on the Nile where we have like an hour before the boat. Yeah, no, and, and that new movie. And again, smart choice, I think, about Donovan there. He just said, Let's just go to the boat. Let's just go straight to the boat. That's where the story is. Let's go. And boom, you just save yourself a lot of time there. Shame so that, that Kenneth Branagh is not that intelligent. What do we have next? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, the next film is the last one, I guess, for, for this one. Okay. Wow. That went quick. Uh, it was... She's funny that one, way? Yeah, she's funny that way. Almost 15 years, almost 15, 13 years between The Cat's Meow and She's Funny That Way. Why so long? I think I think the, the well just dried up. I don't know. Uh, That's for theatrical. He did do stuff in between those, right? He did one other film between okay. That's those it. and that, which we'll get to next week. But um, yeah, really, really, he was. Uh, I I think as I kind of made mention of in uh, my intro there, a lot of it was dedicated to more preservation works. Um, I, I uh, especially getting the other side of the wind off the ground. There was a lot of a lot of negotiating, a lot of maneuvering to make that happen, which he'd been doing for a long time before, but there was a lot of mm -hmm. starts and stops. There was, there was some time during the 90s when Showtime uh, got the rights to, to kind of bring it together, but it just didn't manifest, it didn't happen. Uh, but he finally did in his, in his later years. But before then, 
um, before he brought that project off the ground. Uh, some some of his followers helped him bring a project off the ground. Uh, Noah Bombach and Wes Anderson helped finance and champion uh, one last project for Bogdanovich to bring to the screen, something he wrote in the 90s. I was delighted when I saw their names at the end because I thought they're the only modern directors I should trust to be able to do something in this form again. I, I think the the advertising for the film is incredibly deceptive. If you look at you the do. poster, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, oh look, yeah, that poster looks like a the most basic romantic comedy set in New York or something. Well, I, I've seen a lot of contemporary interviews that say, "Oh, it's like you know, it's a modern. It's got the same you know feeling as like a contemporary Woody Allen film." And I, th I think the advertising has a lot to do with that because the film itself aside from having a New York setting, doesn't feel particularly Woody Allen. There are a few moments I thought it was Woody Allen-ish, but I think the poster is the most Woody Allen-ish thing about it. I, I think the, the seeing the poster make, like, like projects that idea of, of Woody Allen. Because it looks like Manhattan. And then, yeah, because yeah. you, you got the literal Manhattan skyline on it, and it, <laughs> yeah. and it looks like that. And it's got you know the you know the idea with all the pictures on it and the big celebrity names like a modern Woody Allen movie in 2014, um, and and it's got that generic title you know like you might find in a Woody Allen. She's funny that way. That was not the original title of the film. The original yeah. title was Squirrels to the Nuts, which yeah, very very different and much more fitting as you'll find out. Uh, I just also want to show you real quick that, that this was the, the DVD cover. You can't see the people listening, obviously, but uh, this is the DVD cover for a lot more colorful. That way. Yeah, and it's got the same font, the same like kind of quirky look uh, as the, the actual titles in, in the, the opening titles of the film. So it's very clear that uh, she's funny that way, the title change and the, you know, the, um, the, the presentation of all the marketing was all on that, that department, not necessarily on uh, Bogdanovich's. And I think the, uh, even the uh, the European release title I like better, it's called Broadway Therapy. That is good. <laughs> Again, get better reflection of what's actually in the movie. She's funny that way, generic that can mean anything. title. Yeah, and it really doesn't pertain to the film. Who's, who's funny, what way? You know who's uh, funny. It's Imogen Poots. Where'd she find that fucking accent? I, it, she's working with the same acting coach that helped Lady Gaga with House of Gucci, obviously. That's 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 what all the other reviews on Letterboxd say. They that say that about, complaining okay. about Imogen Poots's. I'm not complaining. Accent. I'm complimenting no, no. her. Yeah, no, I think I think she does a great job. Maybe not complaining, but definitely like addressing the accent because it's <laughs> it needs to be addressed. It's big. It's big accent. Yeah, she really goes for it. Whatever she's doing, it's implacable to me where that accent is from. It's not New York. It's it's almost like almost like a Mass accent, Massachusetts accent. But I can't I I can't put it together. Yeah. So uh, quite, what a quite, choice. Uh, I think. I, and again, I think this this uh, is a carryover problem from the Cat's Meow, but pro probably even more so here. I think this film feels especially cheap i feel like mm. i feel like the the luster of bogdanovich's directorial prowess has very much lost its mark by now and i think that's extremely evident in the opening the the, the framing scenes of the the interview between imogen poots and eileen douglas which is just a two shot in some random ass studio it is yeah and it just cuts back and forth between, you know, these shoulder up framed two shots uh, in an empty studio. And 
the context is that Imogen Poots is being interviewed as this now successful actress about where she got her first big break. And she doesn't look like she's a particularly successful actress based on the area we're in. I, I, my pervasive feeling watching the film I was like, it feels like this movie was shot in a weekend. Like yeah. you just got together all your buddies and you made one more movie. Uh, and, and I think that was really the case. I think that was kind of what happened. Like, I mean, you got Owen Wilson because he's, you know, best buddies with Wes Anderson and mm -hmm. Wes Anderson introduced him to, to Peter Bogdanovich. And then you got the rest of the people probably because they were just like Peter Bogdanovich, you know, yeah. let's yeah. Well, how are you going to pass up an opportunity to make a film with him? You got, you even got like old friends, like you got Sybil Shepard showing up in a small role as Imogen Poots's white trash mother which I kind of love. I kind of love the, that <laughs> casting there. It is fun. Um, but she's very inconsequential in the film otherwise, um, as, as is her father, who randomly shows up in a scene later simply because it's inconvenient to the characters and causes more comic tension. There's no reason for him to be there. There's no logic for him to be there either. Uh, and, and that was another thing that I had an issue with the movie is that the... The, the film's logic is entirely based on what is most convenient to make hell for these characters. Yeah. Uh, I, I got particularly fed up when everyone happened to, you know, congregate at one restaurant <laughs> for no reason. There's apparently only one Italian restaurant in all of New York. And they and, all... And they all brought to go there. they all brought the wrong dates they all brought someone that they shouldn't especially be associated with at that time like uh, the therapist went with their client and the the acting coach or whatever went with the actress and this other guy went with the mistress i mean it's just nonsense and, and they just all happened to go to this one particular italian restaurant <laughs> in new york city of several million people and, and you know what? And, and it was frustrating because I was sitting there watching it. I'm like, there's a very easy solution to this. Like, like this movie makes New York feel really, really, really small. But you can do that and it still feel logical. You know, you, you can have that is being the case in something like, yeah, you know, they all laughed. Like, the, well, um, all you have to do is show those characters together at the restaurant before then. And then it establishes that's their neighborhood hangout or something. Or, or, or just like, like some piece of dialogue. And, and yeah. you can even make it a joke. Like, oh, I hear this restaurant has the best meatballs in town. Like, and have right. everyone say it exactly like that. And it's a punchline from the repetition of it. And then, oh, how crazy. They all met at this one restaurant. Oh, that's so funny. But instead, because there's no, like reasoning behind it it just feels like a contrivance it just feels like the script just it's just a setup there. for a joke yeah yeah and, and and when the the structure of your 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 uh, script like that is just so naked and so obvious it, it can be frustrating <laughs> i was surprised though how much fun i had despite all this i i don't yeah. think the low budget and the the small shooting schedule is a huge problem for bogdanovich because he's still very competent and funny and I, I wish it looked better. I, I feel like I yeah. would be so, like, because you're right, the film is incredibly charming. It's got so much Bogdanovich personality, and it is genuinely funny and, you know, like, like cute. And I feel like I could give it a lot more to pass if it didn't look so ugly. Like, it is ugly. It, it, there's a pervasive yellow, like, tint yeah. over everything. Like, what the fuck happened with the lighting in this movie? I can't. I can't believe it. Like everything is just super orange and it's really ugly to look at. And like I said, the 
the the like the cinematography just looks super like amateurish like the, the just the two shots there there's not much interesting cinematography going on you know like i it it feels very bizarre to be from the same filmmaker who who had some real you know uh maverick sensibilities to them but there is still like like i said a lot of personality um and, and a lot of personal inflection here too there is you know uh uh, the, the the main thing, I guess the, the crux of the film is surrounding Owen Wilson's character, who is a theater director who occasionally hires escorts, gives them a bunch of money, and tells them to just live their life. Just, just be <laughs> yeah. free. Um, the film doesn't explain where he gets these $30,000 so often. No. Which, again, another contrivance for it, but it is somewhat based in, in uh, sincerity and reality, because this is something that Bogdanovich did when he was in Singapore filming mm -hmm. St. Jack. And so that was something from his own life that he wanted to kind of like, I don't know, explore or, or utilize in, in this kind of funky script because he found it something, you know, that was very odd to do. It's, he certainly did it in a time where he was being very, like, reckless and, and, and blase uh but in, in in the film it's it's the setup for a bunch of comic like run-ins uh it, it makes sense for bogdanovich to do in singapore because you know <laughs> he, he does he's not going to run into those women ever again they're going to go right. on and live a successful life whereas this new york director you know ends up running into all these people that he fed the same cheesy line to while giving them the money to make their careers, and then everyone who also who we also fed those lines to and gave money to be successful gets upset because the the it bursts the bubble of their their fantasy that he was this you know made these big romantic gestures for them mm. specifically. <laughs> like all four movies this week, though, it's just uh, polyamorous because that's admirably what Bogdanovich is interested in. Yeah, again and. Now, this is, uh, I, I described this to you as this feels very much like kind of a, like a cross-pollination between the stage farce and antics of Noises Off with the New York setting and, you know, um, personal affection and parallels of They All Laughed. But it's not quite as uh, coherent or as well-directed as those two, but it still manages to, to string a lot of the personal Bogdanovich, you know, identity uh, from those two, uh, and and again have a lot of like charming and pull off that uh, approach to uh, you know kind of philandering and you know open relationship and, and you know sexual yeah. you know dalliances uh, with with a wholesomeness that is pleasant. Um, again, not not in the sen same sense as they all laughed, where the characters are free from consequence. Quite the opposite. No. The consequence is often the the punchline here. Uh, it, and it really so is really, like that that bedroom farce of of that uh, noises off mixed yeah. with those parallel lines like you're saying um, and and there's some really good punch lines i think there's some really good performances here yeah um uh catherine hame it, it gets to be particularly venomous mm -hmm. in in how she uh just blows up at Owen really enjoy she finds out the whole squirrel's nest thing oh yeah she's She's got a great, like, like, you know, cursing him out at one point, really <laughs> fucking great. And then I, I kind of love how absolutely awful Jennifer Aniston is in this. Yeah, she is. She's... Um, I like, I like that we get our guy Richard Lewis in there, um, major comedic presence in New York, of course. So. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, we, we've also got uh, a, a repeat from uh, an old one of uh, Austin Pendleton uh, as the judge, the elderly horny judge, who yeah. was uh, in, in What's Up Doc, um, if you remember, he was, um, uh, what was the guy's name? He, he was the guy running the foundation, uh, the contest, you know? Yeah. Um... Fred, Frederick Larrabee, the Larrabee Foundation. Yeah. He's he's really funny in this. I love just horny judge running around almost like he's in a completely different movie. Very very enjoyable. <laughs> and uh, this was a a co-write with his wife or ex yeah, wife yeah, right? Louise Stratton. It was, his, it was his wife when they wrote it. Ex wife at the time of the film. Uh, it was not a marriage that panned out entirely, uh, but one that you know was still very good for him. And again, he he maintained uh, affectionate relationships with every you know, woman he was with throughout his life, except for his first wife, really. Um, yeah. But you even see, like, you see Sybil, you know, Sybil's still very much a, you know, important person in his life. I love that Sybil stuck with him as he continued to make movies with the women that he was kind of falling into each time. Mm -hmm. Very funny of her. Yeah. Very good and supportive. Yeah. The, the other thing I'll say with this film is, uh, I guess one last critique before I turn it around into a point of praise is that it hammers on the old Hollywood references with less genuine, with like with less sincerity than anything else. Like I, this is the one time where I feel his old Hollywood proclivities to be really forced. Yeah, there. Uh, in in the beginning, with Imogen Poots's character just like like spouting, you know, these old, you know, like references to old Hollywood stuff and this affection with like Audrey Hepburn. And I like that things. stuff actually. I like her Audrey Hepburn fascination. I just I, I wish it felt a little more like because there's also like the weird thing where they have like the images behind her like kind of like photoshopped in or whatever it looks really odd um and then the, the straight up kind of like taking the whole impetus you know, the whole idea of the squirrels to the nuts from mm -hmm. Clooney brown though you're never like it never feels like that until the very end when it's revealed which i think sets up the film's best punchline really. how do you feel about Clooney brown being played at the end I think that's very jarring. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, they just like cut to it. If the, there's a way of doing it, like if you had it, like you, you could have had them like leave the room and then like panned over to like a TV that was playing it, and you had the scene go in the background. That would have felt a little, little more natural to me, and so m more akin to you know how What's Up Doc ends with the going to the the screen on yeah. the plane. Yeah, something like that. That that would have been smoother. The way it happens here, just it's cuts just in very to footage. Yeah, it's very crude, but. I think the the bit before that is really funny, and I think yeah. it might, might be <clears throat> the best Quentin Tarantino cameo. In the movie. <laughs> yeah, it I, if you if you're gonna have anyone swoop in to explain your obscure Ernst Lubitsch reference, it should make be it Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino. Yeah, I I think this is again him trying to balance those old fascinations with how to make modern comedies lean that way. So. Uh, very glad it was put on by Bombach and Anderson, who seemed yeah. to understand those same tendencies. And and ultimately, it's uh, what, what I felt about it. Walk away is that I'm I'm very glad it exists. It it feels like it should have existed before. It feels like it exists in a kind of compromised format in a way that not everyone here is best suited to it. It wasn't given all of the financing it could have, and Bogdanovich is certainly not at his most you know creative at this point in his career. But this is still a realization of a project a director had been wanting to make for decades, 
and we have it and it, it, it exists. It's not a lost film, a lost idea, you know, like so many other directors had, even, you know, his own, you know, uh, uh, idols, you know, the, think about all the, the Orson Welles films that never came to fruition. Um, mm -hmm. Or any other of the, you know, the the filmmakers of, you know, that time, you know, all, all of these lost projects, all of these ones that we, you know, wish could have existed in some capacity. And the fact that she's funny that way does exist and it does, you know, it is realized through some distinctive idea of, you know, Bogdanovich's personality. And particularly in, in how it maintains that identity, despite the kind of the veil of modern rom-coms that kind of, yeah, you know, it, exactly. it, it, it feels distinctive for what it is and it's, you know, in, in when it was made and it feels very much like a Bogdanovich film still. And that endears me to it more than even some of his better made films. You know, there, there are some yeah. we talk about that are just Bogdanovich lists. Like they, they don't have his, you know, imprint as much as something like this does. And so even though it's, it's definitely a, a bit, you know, kind of, uh, thrown together, not, not so greatly constructed for a final film, you know, final film that, uh, for his career. I, I think it's fitting. I think it's really nice and, and worth watching. It's, it was very pleasant watch if, if a little, uh, you know, constructed. I always thought that Imogen Boots was going to be in like the class of like Margot Robbie, Andy Taylor-Joy, Shersha Ronan. Uh, I always thought she was like in that class of the stars that would be big. So I really like her here, even the, the very strange accent. Glad she, she got a moment. She has a big following, doesn't she? Like the, again, like half she needs a bigger following. Talk about, yeah, so they, they talk about Imogen Poots a lot right. more than Bogdanovich. <laughs> I know. Uh, she's more central to the maybe his techniques. Uh, I, I thought she was going to be big. She always had that like letterbox, like Twitter following that, that seemed like she was going to be one of those girls. And then, then she took a lot smaller movies, it seems like. She trended a lot smaller than the Marigo Robbies, of course. Yeah, I guess. Well, uh, do you want to move on to ratings? Yeah. Um, rankings, ratings. Rankings, ratings, and rat raving <laughs> rantings of Mad Men. All right. Well, why don't you start by reading me off where we sit right now? All right. Uh, okay, I'm just going to read them in order. What's up, Doc? Paper Moon. Mask. They all laugh. St. Jack. The last picture show. At Long Last Love, Nickelodeon, Daisy Miller, Targets, Texasville, and Illegally Yours. Uh, then we'll just put the cat's meow down at the bottom. <laughs> you, you think it's worse than Illegally Yours? No, no. I'd, I'd put it above that. All right, all right, hold on. Let's, let's, let's come back to it. Let's start at the beginning here. Let's start, with, okay. let's start with Noises Off. That was the first one up here. Okay, let's put that one at the top. <laughs> above, you think it's better than What's Up Doc? Uh, it certainly has more sardine removals. So many I laughed more in um, Noises Off than I have any of these other movies. I, I even, laughed the whole movie. More than, even more than What's Up, Doc? That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, there are just so many bits and it's nonstop. And, um, I'm not saying it's a better movie by any means. I just laughed a lot more. It's a different kind of comedy. Uh, I think yeah. despite the kind of screwball crossovers, the more farcical nature of, of Noises Off uh, has a tendency to elicit more boisterous laughter, I think for sure. I think the jokes are definitely better crafted and what's up doc a more clever a more oh yeah they are better jokes more, uh, yeah, more personality uh yeah noises off is is definitely like like uh, a cacophony incarnate yeah uh a, a very good one but sometimes a little uh 
overwhelming a little something i like more than what a joke is too far and it becomes funny because it's gone way too far (laughs) that appeals to me um yeah i don't i don't know where where it should go do you um i i think maybe um here i I guess here's my question uh i I guess kind of to return to last week's conversation it'll help inform us on this ranking here you you told me off uh podcast here that they all laughed is growing with you a bit is that Mm -hmm. is that true yeah, which so, is why I, I allowed you to do that last week because I thought it had that potential to be better than St. Jack. And um, I feel like it's on the same level now. I, I appreciate them both about evenly. I'm gl- glad, to, glad to hear that. So where then does, uh, do, do you think Noises Off surpasses it for you? Or do you think no. They All Laughed is, you, you think They All Laughed is better than Noises Off then? I think St. Jack is, so I'd say yeah. I'd, I'd put it below St. Jack above Last Picture Show, probably. Okay. I think Noises Off is, is better than, than St. Jack for me. Again, okay. uh, j- just in terms of, again, bo- both are cases of really sharp and, uh, you know, expert direction from Bogdanovich. But there, there's definitely greater clarity to Noises Off. And that clarity, particularly in the first act, is really vital in setting up and controlling the madness Whereas clarity is almost non-existent in St. Jack. <laughs> as long as we get it above Last Picture Show, and I think below Mask, I think I'm fine with whatever we did there. Okay, I think that's good. So, uh, again, I, I I found myself just still sticking with They All Laughed so much uh, okay. that, that I want to put Noises Off just below it, just below it. I'm fine with that. Um, I like Noises Off so much that I don't mind even slipping it above uh, That's still that top one. five. You know, that's yeah. still top five there. That's, you know, which, which is really good. Then uh, we have uh, the thing called the thing love. Called is that love. next? Yeah, I, I have uh, no idea what to do here. <laughs> it, uh, when I was looking at my personal list here, uh, I'm kind of weighing it against Texasville. equally mundane Texasville. Yeah, yeah. That the I want to give it the edge on Texasville. Okay. Uh, even though Texasville has, I think, a bit more thematic ripeness to kind of mind, just because River Phoenix is is more compelling i think than jeff bridges or civil shepherd is and uh music music is good i like that's the music. Uh, that's right where i was going to put it too so i thought right in par with texasville but just an edge above because of the phoenixness and and nashvilleness of it all yeah that seems Thing pretty pretty agreeable there easy um less easy as uh cat's meow which i think should be down by uh the thing called love actually Okay, so remind me just like what's on the other side of the thing called love above it. Uh, is... Targets is above it. Texasville below it. Uh, Daisy okay. Miller above Targets. Uh, I'd put it below Daisy Miller though. Okay. Would you? Yeah, and you and you wouldn't put it above Targets. I'm guessing. Could, could I convince I, you? You could convince me, but I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't okay. choose to do it. Okay. Well, then could I could I compromise then by asking to have it above? Thing called love and below targets then i'd like that actually i think that's a fair choice because i see what you like about it i just can't agree that it's a compelling or interesting movie at all uh yeah i think at the very least i could i could persuade you that it's got more distinctive qualities than the thing called love in texas bill <laughs> i think so yeah. i think it was more worth making than than those movies were um but i also think it's on the other side of mank too i i think it's pretty close to uh, a mink kind of movie. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that. 
Uh, you know, again, I, I see what you mean, and not just because of the, the Hearst involvement and all that there. I, I certainly see the parallels, but uh, this is, I, I think, more interesting, more compelling, and less pretentious than Mank. And if I hadn't watched the Death on the Nile with the Jack Nardif, uh, 1970s cinematography i think it would very easily slip above uh, the, the difference, uh, targets so. the difference is is that i'm not going to recommend you rewatch this for better context whereas yeah. with something like at long last love i think you really missed out by watching the wrong version this won't convince me through a, a better version um uh, uh, that long last love it had like what 20 30 minutes chopped off the end and it was like a bright uh like when you turn old televisions off and they still have like the this the square in the middle as they kind of go out for a moment. That's kind of what was there in the whole movie. Yeah, no, this wasn't this wasn't a director's cut thing with like the thing called love where that was only like four extra minutes or something. And there was a couple of shots of her like looking through luggage and the songs were a little longer. There's a whole fucking half hour missing out of Long Last Love. You, you definitely missed some, some vital <laughs> the, stuff. The there. ending of the movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it was just yeah, like there's probably a lot. I, I I don't know honestly what's what exactly was missing, but by all measures, by all accounts it's supposedly a completely different movie. So yeah, it, okay. it's worth seeing. Anyway, last one then. The last uh, theatrical film from uh, Bogdanovich here, She's Funny That Way, or as I'm going to call it from now on, Squirrels to the Nuts. Um, Squirrels to Nuts then would be uh, bottom half still, I think. I don't think we're going to get it past targets either. Do you? What's, what's above targets? I got to remember. Um, above targets would be... Uh, Daisy Miller, Nickelodeon, At Long Last Love, The Last Picture Show. I, Jack. I think it's better than Daisy Miller. I have more fun okay. with it than Daisy Miller. Um, now it's not as good as Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon is very funny. It's very well made. Um, it, you know, it's got some less well components, but it looks, you know, like like a movie. It looks like a, you know, a, a really well Daisy Miller movie, so. too looks like an incredibly well made movie. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with that, but uh, I feel like. She's funny that way has a lot more personality and that ultimately kind of like wins me over more than Daisy Miller, which is just so uninteresting to me. It's not uninteresting. It's uninteresting to, me, to you. To me, but, to me. Um, that's, that's why that's I said to me. Hmm. I, uh, which I, I, and you know, I'm not going to ask that question because I already know you answer what? exactly. <laughs> What's that? No, no, I wasn't going to ask which one you prefer to watch because I, I know that's a question that's going to backfire. <laughs> I think I'd put it between Targets and Daisy Miller, probably. I've I've compromised a lot for Daisy Miller on here <laughs> okay. for you. I just I just want to say you that want Daisy it above Miller, Daisy Miller. Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, I I, I, I this because Daisy Miller also it actually might feel the least Bogdanovich of of some of these here, uh, because it, it's so, just such a very different film form. I think she, the thing called love is the least i think it at least there's, has a, some, there's like, a john there's a john wayne movie <laughs> in the thing called love so automatically it's more bogdanovich uh, but those first <laughs> 10 minutes are really like a screwball comedy uh, it just doesn't stick to it um so where are we putting um i i would like she's funny that way above daisy miller okay and below nickelodeon yes i like she's funny that way so it's a, a fair enough compromise I like it more than you do, maybe. So that's fair. I, uh, I think you do. I think the ugliness of the movie definitely like hurts it for me, but I I appreciate it for what it is, uh, and and the fact that it exists and the distinctive qualities of it. I think are all uh, admirable, if not the best executed. Well, uh, let me read our list that we have now. Um, What's up, Doc? Paper Moon, Mass, They All Laugh, Noises Off, Saint Jack, The Last Picture Show, At Long Last Love, 
Nickelodeon. She's funny that way. Daisy Miller targets the cat's meow. The thing called love. Texas Phil and illegal yours. We've done a lot of movies already. That's that's sixteen, yeah. And yeah. Uh, next week we'll have six more. We're doing <laughs> six movies next week, and we'll be in person. So a, a special between yeah. geeks in person production. The, next week is what the whole podcast this this time has been building up to. Yeah. Because in, up till this point, if you've listened to anything about Bogdanovich, you might have even heard of some of these you know ones even from this last four like cats meow might have come up maybe you were around in 2014 when she's funny that way it was made you probably know about river phoenix so yeah yeah you haven't heard shit about these next six films <laughs> um, yeah maybe to serve with love too is the only one that people might be on the radar yeah but because of the recent like, bets yeah what what R- rescuers the story of two women you what don't is know that? what the fuck that is yeah, yeah i don't know so the next six films were TV movies Bogdanovich made from the mid-90s into the early thousands. And we're getting to a saintly switch, which is the only reason I agreed to do this podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, the whole the whole impetus, the whole conception of doing Bogdanovich uh, in the wake of his death was motivated by a <laughs> Disney movie with David Allen Greer. David Allen Greer from uh, In Living Color, uh, one of my favorite uh, comedians on TV. I, I really appreciate that guy. So. So we'll see. I don't know. There's a very interesting mix here uh, and really zero expectations. I don't yeah. know what uh, <laughs> uh, anything is going to be here. And we're uh, going to try to rent them from a, a physical Scarecrow. store. So hopefully yep. Scarecrow don't go rent them before us, but uh, um, we're hoping they have them all. <laughs> they they have most of it. Like all of these exist on physical media of some kind. Two of them only exist on VHS, but luckily yeah. I've you know, we we we, can... we have those on YouTube. Yep. Um, but otherwise, yeah, we're we're going to be covering these some of these films. Like people never talked about it all. They have like like barely any you know activity on on Letterbox. One of these has ten views. Ten. <laughs> ten and we have ones. access to that potentially. Which one's yeah. that? That one's that one's uh rescuers. Yeah, and then uh, Blessed Assurance here has twenty three reviews. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, all, all on the positive side of things. Okay. So uh, there's, let's see here, for rescuers, there's a review. Not uh, in English, right? It's... Nope. Couldn't even tell you what language this is. I thought uh, I translated it, but uh, I think it was fairly positive. Um, yeah, four, four stars. That's, you know what? Maybe maybe Paper Moon should be uh, shaking in its boots. <laughs> I mean, that's a high average if that's your only review. That's like uh, definitely certified fresh on Rotten Tomato. Yeah, so there's some potential here. We're not done. We maybe got some new classics to unveil to you. Um, so, do we have uh, anything to plug? Do we have a website? I think we do. The the something, right? I just remember the the. The, the, the thing called the, the twinkies.com <laughs> will be our website where you could uh, follow uh, Ranking the Monsters. There'll be an episode. There'll be another episode of our uh, music show 808s and Pod what's, breaks. What, what's next time on Ranking the Monsters? I gotta know. Uh, Son of Godzilla and something else. <laughs> Son Man. of Godzilla and uh, Ebra uh, Horror of the Deep, which ah, I really okay. liked. That's oh. that, that surf rock Godzilla swiping uh, jets out of the air while dancing. Very fun stuff. And it's also like a James Bond 60s uh, spy spoof. So that one's a lot of fun. Son of Godzilla, of course, is the one where uh, Godzilla has a son. And uh, Makes sense. He uh, protects him, and it's kind of like a Jurassic Park fantasy island thing. It's interesting. Cool. Uh, and uh, what, what are you and Kevin doing on 808s? 
Uh, we did uh, Kanye's Jesus to celebrate the new movie on Netflix, uh, Genius, which is out. Uh, first part's out now, next two, next couple weeks. So that'll be up soon. We're also looking at doing a couple other rappers that I, I don't, we don't need to announce yet. We'll see when that okay. happens. Okay, okay, cool. Um, uh, thinking of spoiling things, um, on short they... hiatus while, hiatus? while Steven's okay. away in Spain, I believe. So. Oh, Spain. Okay. Cool. Cool for him. Uh, and Daydream cast back and uh, back in action. They're working yeah. on Half-Life 2 next, I believe they announced, right? That's exciting. I, yeah. I love that game. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the modern cast will go through, uh, um, a change soon. So, uh, stay tuned next two, three weeks. We'll have interesting news about what we're doing there great all right uh all i think that's everything for now so look forward to next week for a very 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 special between geeks cast uh part five for the films of peter bogdanovich all right thanks so much david Conversations and I post them online for entertainment. It's nice to know. At least you listen to the show because it's quite the possibility that nobody is listening to me in this modern world. Things have changed. Everybody's entertaining. Who's being entertained? Thank you for listening. Say